Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I still carry within me the little girl who lived in Boiling Springs. Someone who is often scared, often wanting to disappear, and hungry. <laughs> I never left that little girl behind. I carry her with me. And part of that is what made me want to be a writer because I thought it would be something that you could escape into, sort of hibernate. My name is Monique Trung, and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Monique Trong. She's a Southern girl twice over, having been born in South Vietnam and grew up in the American South. And she's a author of award-winning novels like The Book of Salt, Bitter in the Mouth, and The Sweetest Fruits. She's won all sorts of awards. She's written all sorts of amazing essays, which we're going to talk about and put in the show notes. But she's hilarious. <laughs> she's amazing. And I, I was excited to speak with her even before we talked to her because we had done so much pre-reading about her. And in my mind, she was going to be kind of a very similar version of you, Remen, because the two of you had have, have experiences growing up in the South and being minorities. And, and it just seemed like that, like the conversation just felt like we were, we had known each other forever. Yeah. I feel like, you know, there's kind of like an approach to life and we have very different lifestyles of what she does for a living, what I do for a living, but, and we were shaped in different ways, right? Immigration from Vietnam versus India with our parents and the parts of the South we grew up in. I was in a more suburban part of the South, but steeped in that culture. And she grew up in the rural parts, but yeah, there's kind of a, a similar sensibility to everything. And we cover a lot of topics, not just the writing that she's done, but the experiences she's had as a little girl, as a grown woman living in Brooklyn. And it's just so much fun. So we think you're really going to enjoy our conversation with our new friend, Monique. Monique, thank you so much for joining us on the pod. It's great to have you here. It's so lovely to be with you. <laughs> so Monique, I have become a very recent fan of many of your essays, and now I'm going to have to read all of your books over the next few months. But I got to ask first, because I'm sure you've never gotten this question. Ever, ever, ever. Brand new <laughs> question. <laughs> Where are you from? Mm. Well, since you're asking. Oh, I'm no. Here. I, I, I want to hear the answer if someone on the street asked you. <laughs> oh, okay. Yes. That's an entirely different response, which is... I'm from Texas. Follow-up question? It's no, really, where, where are you are from? You, yeah, where are you really from? Houston. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were from North Carolina. Come on. I read that barbecue article. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. I'm actually from North Carolina, Ohio, Texas, you name it. I'm from it. But you don't look like it. <laughs> <laughs> Then I suppose my response would be, where do I look like I'm from? Mm. Oh, no. That mm. got you. In, that got someone in trouble in Singapore, I feel yeah. like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then if they well, say, well, it looks like you could be from Asia somewhere, what mm, would you say? Right. Then, huh, it depends on whether I'm in a generous mood or not. Mm. How are you really? feeling today? <laughs> <laughs> to be clear, I know the answer. We've already read the right, answer. Yeah, in we, the we, intro. Already <laughs> we already know. We already know. 
our listeners um, might not know, but yeah, we, we already right, know. Right, right. Well, if I'm feeling generous, which I often am, I'll say I was born in South Vietnam and I came to the U.S. when I was six years old as a refugee from the Vietnam War. So can you, I mean, what is your recollection, early memories, or we think memories of memories or what other people have told us kind of start to form around three or four. Do you have any early memories or family stories from that time in your life? Or does your kind of mental clock reset and start in in the South? Mm. I actually have some incredibly vivid memories of my life in South Vietnam. But I think the memories are very much childhood memories in the sense that they're they're vivid but they're static. Yeah. And almost like not- pictures, right? Exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking. Photographs. They don't necessarily connect. But the ones I do have, maybe they're even better than photographs. Maybe they're more like one or two or three second film. The colors, the light. Yeah, yeah. Soundtrack? Is there like a music soundtrack? (laughs) I wish. I wish. The only sort of music memory I have from those years are actually a lullaby that my mom used to sing to me. And I can't recreate it for you because it actually doesn't have the the kind of – it doesn't have the kind of melody that a sort of, I suppose – a Western song would have. It's a little bit more complicated, (laughs) but it's almost kind of something I can hear, but I actually don't hear. Does that sound, (laughs) does that make sense? It does. It's almost like a sense memory, even though you can't taste a taste, you know how it makes you feel. The feeling it evokes is kind of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I do want to fast forward a little bit because I heard a rumor I read an article somewhere that you were a baton twirler. <laughs> <laughs> why are you laughing? <laughs> That's awesome. That's why I'm laughing. <laughs> I don't have that kind of coordination, Moni. Right? <laughs> but you're from the South. <laughs> yeah, but okay. See, here's the thing. I am from the South and I am from the deeper South, geographically speaking, than you are. But I grew up in a pleasant suburb in the capital city of Montgomery, Alabama. You grew up in population plus stoplight, (laughs) North Carolina. So your Southern experience, while some of the things I've read does resonate, the surrounding context, it's, there's some, definitely some experts I want to talk through, but yours was a different experience to say we're all from Asia. Asia's a big place. And the method in which my parents came over, over the course of the 60s and the 70s, was very different. Even though we're both South Asian, the way Indians came over is obviously very different from the way Vietnamese people came over in relation to this country. So I think your experience was a little bit different. Not only, (laughs) well, not only was it a different part of the South, a more rural part of the South in North Carolina than the suburban existence I had, but the way your family came over. Something you talk about is, it actually reminds me of my mom's journey from Africa to the UK, is you came from plenty. And you went from having a lot in Vietnam to having significantly less than a lot in North Carolina. Can you talk about that a little bit and that kind of what that made you feel like as a kid? Sure, sure. But I, I just, before we get into that incredibly serious <laughs> and sad topic. I do, I do want to say something about the baton twirl. Oh, please. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go there. <laughs> well, okay. The baton twirling, I have to tell you, was a complete mystery to me. I had no idea why I was doing it. Do you know, it, it was something that my mother had heard about, or I suppose someone must have said to her, Monique seems like she needs friends. Why don't you enroll her in this class? And it just was like, what is this? Is it, <laughs> is it a weapon? <laughs> yeah. 
So, and the picture is legit. There's a picture oh, yeah. online. It'll be in oh, the yeah. show notes. It's legit <laughs> awesome. Right, right. And so okay. were you were you a competitive baton twirler? No, I was a very bad baton twirler. Okay. <laughs> so it is like a weapon then. Is what you're yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. It was I think we were starting to throw the baton above oh, our yeah. head and try that to sounds catch dangerous. it. Yes. Yeah. And I would sort of my instinct was to run out of the way after I threw it up. Mine too. Yeah, I can imagine that. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So just to talk a little bit about my family's experience in the South, I think you're totally right that our experiences were very different because one, my folks and I came over in 1975. And 1975 rural Southern America <laughs> was kind of like, I think, 1965. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The racial sort of dynamics and politics were still kind of in place. Even though my little elementary school that I went to wasn't segregated, it was a de facto segregation. Socioeconomically, which neighborhoods went to which schools? Well, it's such a small town. Everybody went to the same school. Oh, okay. but, but it didn't occur to me at the age of seven to notice that the black children and the white children didn't mix. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> because I didn't see the world that way. They were children. And then also I didn't see myself as something other than a child. I was like everyone around me, so I thought. But very quickly, that experience, <laughs> well, very quickly I learned that I wasn't. But you touched upon the fact that my folks and I came from from plenty. And I, I think that's that's actually a very sort of accurate word to describe our life in South Vietnam. We were of a privileged class. When we came to the U.S., we had nothing, nothing. <laughs> and the experience as a child is of extreme confusion. But the confusion was not so much around the fact that I once lived in a villa by a river, and now I live in a trailer home. It wasn't that kind of understanding of loss. It was more of an understanding that my parents were no longer the same. And I couldn't really put my, I don't know if I have any way of articulating what had so fundamentally changed about them, but they had changed. And it was really scary. I think that's the word I would land on as a child. Is what was scary about it? Did they act differently at home? Or were they acting differently in the world now? Yeah, I think the first sort of instance of understanding that my my folks had changed was really when my mom and I were at the relocation camp. When we first came over to the States, we were at a place called Camp Pendleton, which is a Marine Corps base. So my mother was, I should say that my father would come to the U.S. just two weeks later. But we were, we were apart at this point. And my mother didn't know if he was going to be able to make it. And she was crying. And I wouldn't have said depressed, but I just knew that she was crying. And she couldn't get off the cot, the army cot that was our bed at that time. And I'd never seen my mother that way. And yeah. And there was, <laughs> you know, the, one of the... <laughs> One of the odd things now that I'm talking about this is that I rarely saw my father in Vietnam because he was always working. He was, he was working. a busy executive, right? Yeah. yeah. Or there would be a party at the house and he would be busy, that sort of thing. And so I actually didn't really know my father very well until coming to the States. And so maybe that was part of the 
being scared was who is this man? <laughs> yeah. Do you know? Yeah. Mm. It's almost like the before and the after was just so stark in many, many ways. That's right. That's right. Yeah. There's a piece you wrote in Saver magazine and <laughs> it's about Jello. And at first, oh, yes. <laughs> it came across as very comical. But there's this like really poignant point in the piece. There's this family. I don't know how old you were. I don't recall how old you were, but I believe they were a Polish-American family, the Kohanovic family. I believe they were Baptist. And you guys went over to their house for dinner. And it wasn't just Jello. It was, it was a Jello, Jello salad. salad <laughs> which I, actually, I, as someone who grew up in the Northeast, had never even heard of until I read that article. And I was like, what the heck is this? <laughs> what? <laughs> well, and, and sure. I, I, no. never. Jello to me is like it's served at dessert and there's nothing in it. <laughs> actually, actually, maybe there's fruit. Now that I'm actually really thinking, maybe there was fruit in it. You know how you get the little can of like cocktail, cocktail mix fruit? Yeah, I would see that sometimes, but never with carrots and mayo and raisins like you had talked about. And, and I want to hear the story about the Jello salad and how you and your mom reacted to it. But as you talk about your dad, the thing that it did quite break my heart a little bit when I read it last night, but I just want to read this excerpt. They, the Kahanovic family, had, had welcomed us to the table, which in both our cultures meant that they had welcomed us to be a part of their lives. My father was also the one Trong who ate the jello salads with a resolve that showed that he at least understood long ago what they were really about. And it seems like it wasn't sacrifice, but it was like, and it was, I mean, I think this family, it, based on what you later tell us about reaching back out, staying in touch with them, but this was a very important invested relationship that he was going to eat the damn jello salad <laughs> because <laughs> it meant something bigger than what is this weird concoction. <laughs> yes, he's going to take one for the family. <laughs> well, and I mean, it's an investment in the relationship with this family, which became oh, part of your life I, for a little bit. Absolutely, absolutely. And they were actually a Catholic family. And oh, I'm sorry. Okay. No, 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 no worries. And that's actually kind of, it's an important detail because in this area of North Carolina, there were many Southern Baptists. Very Protestant and, part of the country, yeah. Yeah, and they were also very welcoming towards us, the churches. And my father and mother were both Catholics. But for a while, we went to both Baptist services and Catholic services <laughs> just to say thank you, right? But so I suppose I bring that up because I suppose there's a Maybe my folks felt a deeper connection with the Kahanovic because of that Catholic faith that they shared. And it's true that they really sort of, they welcomed us in a way that, I don't know, so, <laughs> so giving and not really expecting much back from us. Sometimes you can feel when someone is kind of offering charity and want in return gratitude, some show of gratitude. And this family, I never felt that from them. Is that why you never ate the jello salad? No. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. But that jello salad, wow. <laughs> I haven't had one maybe since. I think, yeah, why would you? <laughs> right. <laughs> You're right. answering one of the last questions we ask on this yeah. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'm curious, did they ever come over to your house and be exposed to something in a way that their reactions would indicate it would be equivalent of jello salad to them? Yeah. I'm trying to remember. I feel like after we left the trailer home, we moved in a, into a, like a small duplex apartment. And I don't think we ever had them over, but I feel like my mother must have made food and brought it to their home. Yeah. Yeah. And they always ate it willingly. It was never. Yeah. I don't 
have any memory of them going, ew. <laughs> <laughs> or what? Well, that's, well that's, let's be clear, guys. That's because Vietnamese food is objectively good and jello salad that's is true. not. So yes. <laughs> it's kind of an unfair comparison, that's I think. That's very true. That's very true. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure there's there must have been something. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> A while ago now, I read sort of the history of Jell-O, as one would, <laughs> and, and Jell-O was considered a luxury food when it was first introduced in the States. Do you know why? I didn't know that. No. Why? Because you horses had to- Horses <laughs> yes. Because of the gelatin? The horses hooves? Mm. <laughs> That's right. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> It's because you needed to have refrigeration in order to make jello. Oh, yeah. Right? Right. And so housewives would sort of indicate the fact that they did have an ice box or whatever by serving jello. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> I know. So I got to ask Monique how are you the same or different from that? baton twirling jello salad avoiding <laughs> young woman well i think i still carry within me the little girl who lived in boiling springs and when i say that i mean i carry within me someone who is like i said often scared often wanting to disappear and hungry. <laughs> After going to the convicts for a meal, I would go home hungry. Or, or my mother would say, we're going over to the convicts. Eat. <laughs> Eat beforehand. <laughs> so anyways, but I know that was a really sad response, but I, I actually think it's true that I never left that little girl behind. I carry her with me. And part of that, I think, is is what made me want to be a writer, because I thought it would be something that you could escape into. You could sort of hibernate. Sure. <laughs> Until you get famous, Monique. Right. Until you get famous. <laughs> Or until a pandemic hit, and then you're always on Zoom for some reason. Right. Right. Yeah. So, yes, that's my sad but true response. How did you come to writing? How did that start? Yeah. What did you want to be when you grew up? Yeah. Not a baton twirler. Okay. Because we, we ruled that one out when we got hit in the head for the first time. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> huh. When I was very young, what did I want to be? God, I feel like all my responses are going to be sad and true. <laughs> because I actually, I tried to think about this in preparation for our, our little talk today. What did I want to be when I was young? And this is honest. I never had in my mind a profession or like a ballet dancer or a princess or none of that. I just, I just wanted to get older. <laughs> I just wanted to get older. In and, order to do what? Uh, oh, my mother's going to hear this and, and be so, so <laughs> upset. But I think I wanted to get older and leave. Was it leave for, my daughter can't have cookies whenever she wants. But I think she realizes that mom and dad secretly do whatever they want. When she goes to bed, the potato chips come out, right? There's a party. Is, is it, was some of it the grownups have more control over their lives? And more freedom. More freedom. Yeah. I think it's the freedom sort of element. And, and certainly, yeah, just I think at some point in my childhood, I could not understand anymore why my folks would choose to live in some of these places. I, I can totally relate. I just couldn't, 
yeah, I, I couldn't wrap my head around it. After North Carolina, we moved to a small town in Ohio, in southern Ohio. And it was a tad bit better, <laughs> but it wasn't a really great place for... As a kid, it's hard to understand why you're moving. Yeah. What did you think? I mean, more directly, what were mom and dad doing? Was dad chasing jobs or yeah. what was going on? Yeah. yeah, that's it. My father was basically just trying to restart his life and his his professional life. And that was really given how old he was. I want to be honest that my my father and mother were very, very lucky in some senses. One is that both of them were fluent in English and French. So that language barrier was something that was was not a part of really their experience here. But do you know why my father moved us to Ohio? He did it because he had gotten a job with with the same, well, yes, more or less the same company that had been his employer in South Vietnam. And he was, in South Vietnam, he was the second highest ranking sort of exec there. In Ohio, they hired him to be the representative to gas station owners, the company rep for gas station owners, meaning that he would drive from gas station to gas station all over Ohio and Kentucky and Michigan and so on to make sure that they all had their signs up in the right place, that they had their landscaping, their bathrooms were clean. This is a very different <laughs> level of work than what he was used to. But he didn't say no. He just, this is the jello ethos showing right. itself yeah. again. He's like, I'm not, I can't pick and choose. So I'm just going to say yes to this job and it's going to take my family, I mean, from Boiling Springs, North Carolina to Centerville, Ohio. You could not get <laughs> those names are so on the nose, it's crazy. <laughs> and the Centerville is actually on the nose, ironically. <laughs> it was in the middle of nowhere. Did you ever find yourself in situations where you too would, I'm using the word conform, but to conform or to do something similar to the way your dad did in order to, to fit in or just to kind of go with it, even if it didn't immediately feel like the right thing at the moment? Do you mean when I was growing up? Or? When you were growing up in these small little towns, yeah. Yeah. Huh. I think I must have, but... Oddly, Sharon, that's not the story that I tell myself that's about myself. I'm sure I must have in terms of wanting a particular kind of shoes or wanting a polo shirt or the outward indicators of fitting in. I'm sure because I was a kid. But the stories I tell myself of my childhood is that I was so beyond the bounds of being able to fit in that it wasn't a possibility. Hmm. That's interesting. And you would leave the, the dinner table hungry. So there was also a part of you that just refused. I'm not going to eat that weird jello salad today because it's different. <laughs> <laughs> you were a rebel in that way. <laughs> I was a jello rebel. It's true. <laughs> but really, okay. The thing about that jello salad was it often was there would be a layer that was whipped with mayonnaise. I want yeah, that's to, the deal breaker. Yeah, right? That is so weird. I don't even understand that. So, so it's a cloudy, a creamy right. looking. Like a creamy layer. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That was the deal breaker. And greasy, as you say. I've never tried it, but I would imagine it's not just cloudy. It's greasy. <laughs> the mouthfeel <laughs> was different. <laughs> Very different. <laughs> but my God, can you imagine your listeners? There's someone out there who loves the jello salad. I am from Alabama, and arguably half of our listeners are still down there or from there. So, right. <laughs> or right. from the south. I know. Uh, right. so look, Monique, we're accepting on this podcast, but it's okay to be wrong. 
okay. <laughs> um, bad taste. Thanks. Thanks. You got to stick. You got to stand for what you believe in. And- <laughs> Every day we rise challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in at U.S. Border Patrol. Protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and community safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Monique, I want to ask, we asked what you wanted to be, and you did go down the quote-unquote model minority route. You became a lawyer. You got the job doing the thing with important stuff. <laughs> and I want to ask about that because we all know you as this amazingly thoughtful and hilarious writer who's kind of helping bridge these worlds, but that's not what you were doing. So, I mean, more, how did you get to the lawyer land, but then how did you leave lawyer land? Can you talk (laughs) us through that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, all, I feel like all Asian American children. The holy trinity of doctor, engineer, lawyer. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) And my folks knew that there'd be no way that I could get into med school because I I really, high school calculus was basically it for me. And I had no interest in the sciences. So yeah. So I think lawyer was the only thing left of the trinity, right? And I thought Somehow, I, I think I thought that I would be able to go to law school, practice law for no more than five years, make a ton of money and leave it, leave it all behind and then do what I want to do, which I think at that point I realized was I wanted to write. By the time I was in college, that was already a thought in my mind. And I did leave the law. <laughs> That sounds like you became an international criminal. Right, exactly. Left the law. Yes, I left the law when I was recruited into the CIA. (laughs) No, I left the law because I couldn't, I actually physically couldn't do it anymore. I I was starting to develop weird things, a twitch in one eye from the stress. One of my shoulders was permanently sort of lifted up. So I was kind of a hunchback for a while. My back would give out because of the stress. I mean, my body was basically saying to me, if you continue this way, you are going to just expire if you don't actually do something terrible to yourself. And I suppose the reason why I became a lawyer, besides the fact that I couldn't do the other two things, was because my parents were so absolutely frightened for me. They, I think, I mean, I feel like I'm using the word frightened and scared a lot, but that really is kind of the experience of many refugees and immigrants coming here. There's a lack of stability. There's a lack of kind of knowing. (laughs) And I didn't want them to be scared. I thought that I could do this for them and then leave and not be, leave unscathed. But that wasn't going to be the case. (laughs) So I had to tell them, I had to tell them that I couldn't do it anymore, that the misery was not why they risked so much to come here to this country, not so that their children can be miserable. <laughs> and I don't know. I think maybe they thought, well, 
She has a law degree. She can always go back. It's, a backup. it's the backup, right? <laughs> yeah, that's the plan B we've always wanted for her. Money, right. I got to ask, because I've been kind of doing startup-y, entrepreneurial, and now creative stuff for a quote-unquote living. Mm. <laughs> and I was an engineer followed by like business and then marketing and stuff. But I don't know if it's the imposter syndrome, but I would get these dreams that something didn't work out with whatever the current career is. And you have to fall, you actually have to fall back on the backup degree. And I'm like, oh, I'm so effed. (laughs) (laughs) I can't go back and do that. I can't write a line of code that's worth processing. Do you ever think, like, do you ever have that nightmare scenario where Ah. they take the book advance back? (laughs) Oh, right. Her her eye starts to twitch when that happens. (laughs) I know. I know. That's such a good question. And The thing about being a lawyer in a city like New York is that there are many ways for you to be a lawyer. And so I I think I would go back and just be what the kind of lawyer I was right before I left, which was to be a temporary lawyer, which (laughs) which is really the lowest on the rung. Lawyer for hire. Yes. And and they usually, it's usually a massive, large firm that will stick you into the sub-sub basement of the high rise <laughs> they're in with other people who wanted to do something else. Who published right. a book, who had a podcast, right. who had right. a Broadway play. Exactly. This is their side hustle. These are all the side hustle lawyers. Exactly. <laughs> and then you do things like you do document review, which is you look for someone's name in boxes and boxes of documents. I'm sure they have some sort of way to do this, which is much easier than hiring a Columbia-trained lawyer to do it. But <laughs> but really, it's maybe I would do something like that just because I know that it's I can work for three months and have enough to live and write for three months. That's the kind of trade-off I'm willing to make. And it's not as far away as you think. (laughs) We're we're only like a couple of bad months away. But I want to flip that because to fast forward to kind of what you do do today. And one of the last pieces I read made me so happy. So there's this broader sentiment that I hate about the world, that history is written by the winners. And something you wrote, I was literally about to stand up cheering last night, except my wife was already asleep. But your last book. (laughs) is about the search for a gentleman named, I'm going to mispronounce his name, Lafcadio Hearn. (laughs) That's good. That's excellent. And this is the quote I read in this essay, because you were reading cookbooks by this guy. And you said, some cookbooks make me want to cook. Lafcadio Hearn's made me want to get into a fight. Do you know (laughs) how novelists fight? We write a novel about you. And that's what I thought. Yeah, history's written by the winners. And Monique's about to win this shit. Because when you read, this guy seems kind of cool on paper. But then when you dig deeper, he's kind of a dick. <laughs> and can you can you talk about this project? Because it's, I mean, it's, it's a proper novel, but it's... So badass, dude. Like, I'm just like, literally, they're literally fighting words. (laughs) That's where the lawyer comes out, right? You got all the street cred in the world when I read about this, dude. (laughs) That's really, I think, kind of (laughs) true. Before I can really sort of commit to a character or to a novel project, I have to have a lot of questions. I can't find the answers in any other way. So I think with Lafcadio Hearn, who I'm I'm just going to give you a really brief sort of synopsis of his life. He was born in 1850 and died in 1904. And he's half Greek, half Irish. And he is, you know, he made a name for himself as a journalist in Cincinnati, Ohio, in New Orleans. He came to the States when he was a young man. And then sort of towards his, in round the age of 39, he headed off to Japan for a magazine assignment for Harper's. 
And by the time he got there, he was sent there with an artist, right, who was supposed to do the sketches and so on. And he found out that the artist got paid more than him. And so he got really pissed off. And then when they got to Japan, he sent, I forget what they call it then, a cablegram back to Harper's. And they said, yeah, yeah, he's getting paid more than you. <laughs> and he quit. And then he ended up in Japan for the rest of his life, which was only 14 years. But he became incredibly well-known in the West as an expert on Japanese ghost stories, folklores, and fairy tales, right? So he's an interesting dude, right, on, on paper. But there was something, I mean, if you already can't sort of feel sort of the thorns, <laughs> then, then let me just sort of point them out to you that here is this man who lived in Japan for, you know, around 14 years, but, and couldn't, well, you don't know this, but I found out that he didn't actually speak Japanese or write Japanese that very well at all. And he became an expert. So this became this, this kind of, this is something that really, this irritates me <laughs> as a premise, because I can tell you that I could live in the United States for, you know, another 30 decades, and no one's ever going to call me an expert on America. So I think it should be clear that one of the things I was picking up on was, was the privilege of, of his travel and the privilege of his arrival in these places, especially Japan, I really wanted to know, was he an expert? You know, was he an expert the way that he claimed, for example, when he was writing the cookbook on Creole cuisine? His is considered the very first cookbook to be published in the U.S. about Creole foods. And it was clear to me, because I cook a lot, that he had no idea what he was talking about. And yeah, here he is writing a Creole cookbook. So it was all starting to compound. Well, and the way he writes is kind of, or as you <laughs> describe it, is kind of reeks of this privilege. And when you dig into his personal life, it's he was kind of a dick to the women in his life. Like, it's just <laughs> like, well, yeah, I mean, because when you introduce this guy in the article, he seems so cool, too cool for school. And yeah. you scratch beneath the veneer. And he's yeah. like, Ugh, I wouldn't right. want to hang out with that guy. Right. And I hung out with him for eight years in the writing of this book. And the only way I could do it was, was because I found the women in his life. Right. And the novels told from the points of view of three women, his mother and his two wives. His first wife was from Cincinnati, or rather they met in Cincinnati, and she was a black woman. She was born into slavery in the state of Kentucky. And his second wife is Japanese. Yeah, they were incredibly inspiring to me. Because I think at first when I read about them in the biographies that have been written about Hearn, they would appear sort of, of course, because the biography is about Hearn. He's the great man, right? He's the great literary figure. And these women were just kind of side notes, right? And and yet they were they were the ones who I could feel, I could really kind of feel their pulse. <laughs> oh God! When, <laughs> sometimes I feel like when novelists talk about their characters, <laughs> it feels very new agey and weird. Like, oh, the voices spoke to me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true; they kind of did. They were like, "Look, this this biographer is is calling." For example, I'll give you a very clear example. His Japanese wife. The biographers about Hearn would say about Setsu that she couldn't speak English. And they basically present her as this illiterate person, right? And the more that I did the research, I actually went to Japan and I went to the town where they first met and there's a museum there devoted to him. And there, right on the walls of that museum was a timeline. Okay, so the museum's in a town called Matsue, and it said that Setsu had 
been married earlier in her life, and that her husband, her Japanese husband, had divorced her, had abandoned her. Now you think about that. What choice did she have? <laughs> Except for this, like you say, kind of dickish white guy <laughs> who comes along, right? And because of who he is, and the fact that he he can get this position teaching English to the middle school and to the high school students, he had this income that could take care of her entire family. You know, this was a woman that wasn't gonna just. Just collapse. She took this moment and said, "Okay, I'm I'm going to join my life with this man, and I am going to take care of this entire extended family that I'm part of." That to me says bravery, right? It mm-hmm, says mm-hmm. it doesn't speak of powerlessness. It speaks of the opposite. I want to ask another question about your writing. I feel like there's another funny essay you write about kind of being told to swim in your lane when some covers were proposed to you and your kind of like willingness to push back. And I guess it's kind of related to the thing Sharon was asking about earlier, feeling like as a child you needed to fit in, but as an adult, be it the topics you choose to cover or the way you choose to interact with the market, be it book publishers, (laughs) fans, podcasters, I don't know. Can you talk about how there's less of a need to conform and to kind of own own your flag for what it stands for these days? Mm, mm. I think it comes down to the fact that now, see, if my mother hears this, that now she's going to have her moment of, I told you so, (laughs) (laughs) which is it actually, this ability or this, the possibility that I can push back against my publishers and sort of expectations of the way they market or, you know, sort of publicize my books, etc. That all comes down to the fact that I'm not afraid to leave writing. And why am I not afraid? Because I have a law degree. Mm-hmm. So even though I talk about the misery of it all, and I would prefer to never encounter (laughs) another law firm, it is also true that it gives me such choices, and it gives me the ability to say, if you don't like this manuscript, I will pull it from you and I will put it in a drawer and I will go and feed myself and pay my mortgage some other way. Now, and and that is actually a huge source of, I don't know, it's kind of... It's empowering. You have choices, you have options, you know your value and your worth because you don't, you can say no to things. Exactly. And you know what? The sad thing that I've realized about my fellow writers is that so many of them do not know their worth. They feel so incredibly grateful that someone has sort of had said yes to their manuscript. I mean, where would publishing be without writers? Right, right. What what are you going to do? Are you really going to get that barrel of monkeys to write? (laughs) for you. I mean, (laughs) right? And yet so many people that I know will say, will say, yes, okay, I will make this change. It will make it more marketable. It'll make it easier for the reader. It won't be as challenging of a read. It's not my vision, but what are the choices that they have if a publisher says, you don't do this? we will terminate your contract. And I I totally speak from experience because that's happened to me twice. (laughs) It's happened to me with my first book and my second book. So the consequences are real. Yeah. I see a thread, not eating the (laughs) jello, having the law degree as a backup, saying no to publishers. (laughs) 
it, it's all related. It's all related. <laughs> so I've got a question for you. When you brought your your now husband home for the first time, mm. how did mom and dad respond to that? Did they have expectations of who you'd end up marrying? Because you didn't marry. We saw him on, we saw him briefly <laughs> at the beginning of this call. You didn't marry a Vietnamese American. And you married, he looks like he's he's a white man. I'm making some assumptions, but <laughs> standard middle of the road white man. <laughs> how did how did mom and dad from feel? Connecticut, like from Connecticut. From Connecticut. From Connecticut, exactly. That's a true. Yankee. <laughs> <laughs> well, my husband, then my boyfriend, Damien, and I were living together for years. <laughs> Ooh. Before I took him home to introduce him to my folks. (laughs) It was a a secret love for a long time. Right. But it was like one of those open secrets, which are so part of Asian Americana. He's my friend. Everyone knows he's he's not just your friend. (laughs) And he's my roommate, too. So, Mom, when you come over, that's why his stuff is in my closet. Sharon, you laugh, but it's totally, it's true. It's true. He would answer the phone when my mother would call and I would say, oh yeah, he's my roommate. That's funny. And she probably knew the whole time, right? Of course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Moms know before we know. Let's be clear, guys. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Well, by the time that I took him home to Houston, where my folks were, we knew. We kind of knew that this was this wasn't just uh, a brand new relationship. This was this was. I think by that time they already. I told them that I was living with him. I remember my father <laughs> making Damien sleep on the sofa bed. <laughs> yeah, man, you're not married. There's not a ring on that finger. Yeah, yeah. You're in a separate yeah. room in my household. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know if they ever thought that I would marry a Vietnamese American. And I think about like how many Vietnamese American men of my age, for example, that I went to college with, I think in my class, there was maybe three. Hmm. And one of them was my dear gay friend. (laughs) You know? (laughs) So he was at, off limits. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In law school, I can't remember if I went to law school with any Vietnamese American men. In my law firms, I don't really remember. I mean, just in terms of just probability. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a common counter argument I'd make to my parents about Indian girls back in the day. I was like, one, you brought us here, right? And li- no, literally, you brought us to this country and also to a part of the country where there are not a lot of brown people to socialize with. But it's hard enough. Oh, yeah. Sorry, mom. I have been dating. Sorry to break that news to you. But it's hard enough to meet the right person, much less from the motherland or the grandmotherland, from the same part, from the same culture and caste and all that stuff. It's hard enough. <laughs> like meeting people is hard. Right. So when you throw all that stuff on, and you brought us here. That's always the bookend <laughs> argument. <laughs> well, I remember saying to my mother that Damien was a really kind person. And that should be enough for her to know that I've chosen to be with a man who was kind not just in general, but also to me. And I'm not quite sure what else you need. (laughs) But Damien and I actually lived together for nine years (laughs) before we got married. No, that's that's, that's about right, Monique. I'm on your side about this one. (laughs) I remember when we finally decided to get married and I called my mother to tell her. She was so like, Uh Uh-huh. Well, okay. Right. Next. (laughs) It was just, it was over. You know, I mean, it's like, it was already a done deal. I don't know. It just wasn't 
I gotta ask, because this has just been such a ranging conversation. I feel like we're just old friends based on everywhere <laughs> we're going with this. But is he something a lot of my friends make the mistake about is they just assume my wife is like me. And I'm, and then they meet her and it's like, what? And I've now had the privilege of having longer conversations with Sharon's husband. I was like, oh, you guys aren't the same. But every once in a while, you meet two people that are complete piece, same piece of the pod, right? What's Damien like? Is are Would people be like, well, what? Opposite person? Or are you guys more the same? Ha. <laughs> huh. Let's see. Well, are we opposites? In some ways, his brain is wired differently. He's an architect by training. He has, the way that I think about it is that we have different skill sets and they complement each other. But there are certain similarities that I think were necessary and what I would consider fundamental to anyone that I would choose to be with. So things that we have in common are that we love food. We are both politically progressive. I do not understand it when I hear of these love relationships where the couple occupy <laughs> different ends of the political spectrum. I couldn't. I couldn't. And we both have the same kind of stupid sense of humor. We're both, <laughs> we're both goofy, but people don't really know that about us until they really know us. And we both have these, <laughs> this is going to be, this is a little politically incorrect as it were. But for the first few years of our relationship, he was still at Columbia and I was working as a paralegal in New York. And so we were living together in an apartment in West Harlem. And we had Damien and Monique are arguably two very black names. And... <laughs> <laughs> so we have that in common too <laughs> so there you go that was really hard to get a taxi got it <laughs> or on uber i should say because you can punch oh, that in oh good lord this was many many years ago so there was not even something like that but but i do remember trying to i would work so late at the law firm that we always got a car yeah, service yeah. home right and it's it was really weird. The car service in the first law firm I worked at, all the drivers were Chinese Americans. <laughs> and every time I would get into the car and tell them where I was going, which was West 147th Street and St. Nicholas, they would turn around and look at me and say, they hate me. That's why they always give me you. <laughs> oh my God. I know. Talk about, I was like, what? <laughs> Do you know what? They're going to get a book written about them. So yeah. it's kind of win-win. <laughs> yeah. But talk about the kind of the entrenched rather racism right there. Right. I might as well have been Monique. It's, it's under the surface of everything in this yep. country. Yep. Monique, I really feel like we're old friends at this point, but I don't know, Sharon, what do you think? Is our old friend Monique, do you think she's ready for speed round? I think she was born ready. Uh -huh. <laughs> Monique, what is something about you that folks don't expect? I'm very lazy. Huh? Yeah. No. It's true. Define lazy. Okay. Define lazy. I think you probably heard it very early on when I was talking about I, as a kid, I didn't actually want to do anything. I just wanted to like, get older. You just wanted to get older. <laughs> and I kind of can say the same now that I'm in my 50s. I just want to get older, really. That's the I, middle part. Some people look at my CV and, you know, see these schools and these things that I've done. And they think, oh, she just really must be a go-getter. I'm a go-getter because I don't want to be shamed. <laughs> <laughs> Powerful motivator. That is, that is. Okay. You can't mention one of your books, but what is a book, movie, or show that you would recommend that has characters that you relate to? <laughs> but not one of yours. <laughs> 
And that's kind of mean that you have to couch it with that. I don't think Monique, I've known Monique for all of an hour, and I don't think she would pull that. It'd be awesome, but I don't think she'd pull that. I think that'd be a really great way to, to promote her books right now. Like, hmm, well, I've got three of them that just came out. Anyway. Okay, I'm going to go with a film. All right. Okay. Okay, it's Days and Confused. By yeah, um, yeah. Matthew in pure form. Exactly. In in his best role, I would say he's he's never been able to to sort of top that that role. But it was Richard Link Linklater. Linklater. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Okay. Who was the director there? And I don't know. There's, I think there is kind of that friendship among the girl and the two, her two best friends, that kind of geeky kind of high school friendship. But also there's something elegiac about it to me. And it is set in Texas. And that's where I went to high school. And I feel like it really kind of captured those years for me. I feel like every generation has that film about their life. And I'm glad I'm not on someone else's podcast because they would turn that question around on me because <laughs> I, I can't answer yet. What's your favorite mom dish, Monique? Oh my goodness. Basically anything that my mother would cook. But okay, I have one. I'm going to say the Vietnamese name. It's Gatu Ko Gu Rang. And it's basically tuna and it's pan fried and then cooked in a sort of caramelized sauce with fish sauce and galangal. And it's very homey. It's usually cooked in a clay pot. It just is just pure comfort to me. <laughs> that does not sound like something I can get on Grubhub, and I want it <laughs> now. It sounds that sounds so good. It just sounds so savory and, oh, yeah. and yummy. Mm. What is your least favorite food? Uh, Mm. And you can't say jello salad. No. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And actually, it's an ingredient. Is that okay? That's perfect. Okay. Raw onions. Yeah, but come on, dude. That's... No, wait, hold on. I got to say that's a really interesting one because I can see, I can see that. I mean, I guess raw onions does show. It was in a Greek salad the other day and my wife picked it out. Okay. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. Okay. This is how I think of a raw onion in a salad or anything that it's like a, on a taco. Yeah. You see, Got it. Oh, yeah. okay. I think of it as a flavor bully. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't play well with others. It's like, it I'm not. an onion. God damn it. You're so right. You are so right. <laughs> and I see it as a heartburn for the next two hours. <laughs> so I hear you on that. Okay. Since we're friends, can you tell me an ingredient or food that you two don't like? Psh, easy. Cantaloupe. Done. <gasps> the devil's food. Yeah, he hates cantaloupe. Yeah. He hates it. And, and mine would be like, he hates everything about it. No, it, it. just tastes like, it's like a waste up. of Come a, on. It's like a waste of a melon. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. No, this is, of all the questions we ask, it's the one I've thought the longest and yeah. hardest. <laughs> And mine would be licorice. There's just never... It's funny because I like anise. I like star mm -hmm. anise. I yeah. like that flavor. But if it's in the form of candy, I'm just like, oh, it's gross to mm. me. Mm. Okay. Monique, who is someone you would want to interview on a podcast? Oh, I think... I mean, I would want to interview Claudia Rankin, the poet who wrote Citizen. I would want to interview her, but I would be afraid. <laughs> I think she would fill me with apprehension because she's so brilliant and I love her work so much. And she seems, above all, incredible seer and a truth teller. And I fear that she would probably call me out on any BS. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe no, no. <laughs> Let's not do that as a podcast. <laughs> Last question. What mm -hmm. does being a modern minority mean to you? Mm. I think it means to be aware. And I mean aware of your own history within this country, aware of other 
people's history within this country and understanding how this nation has, especially, okay, I'll, I'll say this, especially if you're Asian American, understanding how this nation has used Asian Americans as a wedge group against other groups. Yeah, I think that's what it means. It's really insightful. This whole conversation has been so insightful. Oh. <laughs> Thanks. Well, I've I've had so much fun. I'm glad the world's opening up and people are getting vaccinated because there is beer and tacos with or without onions in our future, <laughs> Monique, I hope. <laughs> or some barbecue. So Oh, yes. that sounds great. Oh, that would be I would love to join you guys for some barbecue. Yes, well, too bad. You moved. You're on the I West know, Coast I'm, now, I'm Sharon. I'm on the West Coast now. But <laughs> Sharon, I didn't realize. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. But I'll be back. I'll be back in the city this year for okay. sure. So we'll go grab some barbecue somewhere. Somewhere that's approved by you, Monique. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to head south then. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Monique, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now here's a preview of our next episode. And that's why a lot of girls don't get into comics. And that's why it's so refreshing to see Kamala Khan. She's nerdy. She's geeky. She loves her family. She loves her friends. She's just trying to do her thing and pass math class. And yeah, it was just all very relatable. One of the things that actually bother me is her rogues gallery. What do you mean by her rogues gallery? Super villains. Maybe her main villain is time management. (laughs) 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 It's really, or just like (laughs) balancing family expectations. Who knows? That's it for now. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.